we're in a series called For the World. Uh, we're, looking, going, we're going through ch- Luke chapter 9 and 10. And we're entering into this special section of Luke chapter 9. It's one of the highlights of the book of Luke called the Transfiguration. And that's, that's a fancy word for this moment in the story where Jesus turns into this really bright figure. And we'll get into that towards like two-thirds into this sermon. But uh, I want to start us off by talking about some, uh, this, this one instance where I was having a conversation with somebody and this person, you know, I don't know if you believe, you know, in the existence of God or not, but when I started talking about some things that are happening in this world, every single time I stopped talking, this person would say this. He would say, if God is so powerful, why does he just blank? You know, something bad happens. Like, well, if God is so, and I said, oh, God was consoling so-and-so. And it's like, well, if God is so powerful, why didn't he just not let that bad thing happen? Or if God is so powerful, why doesn't he just get rid of the bad guys in this world? Oh, if God is so powerful, why doesn't he do X, Y, and Z? And that's usually how the conversation went. And after a while, you know, I got annoyed by that. But I remember going home thinking like, oh, why didn't he do that? Why didn't God do X, Y, and Z? Why doesn't he do these things? Like, if I was God, which is never a good way to start a sentence, but if I was God, I would have done this. I would have done that. I would have done this. I would have kept this from happening. I would have made sure this happened. And, you know, like, why doesn't God do the things that I think he should be doing? And if, you know, like, if I was God, I would be running this world a little differently, where people would have less complaints about my existence. You know, like, like why, why does God do certain things that I think that he should be doing? Because he is all-powerful. I mean, that's what the word of God says, right? So why doesn't he do that? And so the transfiguration story that we're going to be looking at later today, which is in Luke chapter 9, we're, we're going to be looking at the power of Jesus, okay? But also discovering that when he says power, it doesn't really mean power in the way that we mean power. And so this is a really interesting way of looking at it because a lot of times we sing songs about how powerful and majestic God is and how, you know, how strong Jesus is. But I, I want to challenge that today. And you're like, oh, this is Katz's last Sunday. You know, he's going to be excommunicated from the church. Uh, I hope not, okay, because I, I hope that I don't, I, I don't communicate something wrong, okay? I, I want to make sure you understand exactly what I'm trying to say. So in the story of the transfiguration, there's some really strange things that happen. Okay, like Jesus all of, all of a sudden turns into a lamp. He just starts glowing, okay? And then two dead guys show up next to him. Like if you kind of break it down, people are like, that is a strange story. So before we get into that story, I want to give you some context, I want to give you some historical context because the book of Luke, prior to the book of Luke, there's a lot of stories that happened prior to that. That's called the Old Testament. So I want to point out two stories in the Old Testament that's going to help us understand the transfiguration story. Okay, so today we're going to be looking at these two stories, the Moses and Elijah at the mountain of God stories. There's two stories where Moses goes to the mountain of God and Elijah goes to the mountain of God. Because the two figures that show up in the, in the transfiguration story is Moses and Elijah. And they're both, these two characters in the Old Testament, they're separated by several hundred years. So it's like, what do these two characters have to do with each other? Like, did, did God just pick two old dead guys and say, mm, Moses and, oh, Abraham's not available right now, so I'm going to go with Elijah. Yeah, you guys come over here, stand next to Jesus. We're going to tell an awesome story in the book of Luke. Like, is that how they arrive in this story or was there significance, Right? And so when we look at these two stories and we compare them, they do have some overlap. And that's the reason why they show up in this story. And so these two overlaps is that they both end up at the mountain of God. So I want to tell two stories, the Moses story and the Elijah story, and then we're going to Luke's story, and maybe it'll shed some light to what we're trying to, um, 
what Jesus is trying to accomplish in this story. So let's start with the Moses story. Specifically, we're going to be looking at Exodus chapter 19 through chapter 34, which is a long, long section. And half of it is not plot. It's just instructions on how to build a, you know, like what you should do and you shouldn't do and how to build a tent and stuff like that. Okay, so um, let me just give you context on this, on this story. So the book of Exodus starts off with a group of people, the Hebrews, the Jews. They are in Egypt as slaves. And they cry out to God, God, save us. We don't want to be slaves anymore. So God sends this guy named Moses who goes in there and says, let my people go, Pharaoh. And Pharaoh eventually says, okay, fine. He takes his people and he goes into the Red Sea, comes out the other side, and they're walking in the desert following the signs of God. There's pillars of fire, a cloud in the sky that they follow. And they eventually get to this one place called Sinai. Okay, Sinai is is the name of a region. Okay, there's several mountains in Sinai. Specifically, there's one mountain in there called Horeb. And some people call that Mount Sinai because it's the biggest mountain in Sinai. So when you hear the word Horeb and Sinai, they're actually talking about the same mountain here, okay? That's where we pick up our story in chapter 19, verses 1 through 2. On the first day of the third month after Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. So they're in that region now. After they set out from uh, Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, And Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Here it is, the mountain. If you're wondering where this is, people really don't know exactly where it is. We kind of have an idea where it might be. Here's a map. It's at that red dot in the middle, Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. If, If you're wondering where this is, if you go to the left, that tip right there on the green corner right there, that's Egypt. So Africa is over there. If you go north, that's where like the Mediterranean Sea is, right? And over there, that's Asia. That's where we're looking at right now. And this is where they walked all the way to. This is a long journey. If you're going to walk there, it's going to take you days and days and days, right? Okay, so once they get there, Moses hears from God, Moses, I want you to come up this mountain. Climb, start climbing the mountain because I have something to tell you. And he's like, oh, okay. Uh, okay, then I guess, I, I guess I'll start my journey. Now, before this whole thing happens, the whole crowd, like there's thousands of people at the foot of the mountain that just came out of slavery, they're looking at the mountain, and they're like, yeah, it seems like God is there. And the reason why they realize that God is there is because of this verse right here. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear. So it's like, right? And then, okay, trumpet is not like in the rose prayer. No, 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 no. It's like this really deep sound. That's, that's what the trumpet that they're talking about. That's what it sounds like. Okay, and, and when they looked up, they saw this big smoke, uh, like a cloud, enveloping the top of the mountain. So, and the, the ground is shaking. They're looking up and saying, oh, and their immediate response is fear. They're scared. And so their response, they stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. So when they see the presence of God and thunder and, you know, all this crazy scene, like nature is just screaming, right? They kind of back off and say, whoa, Moses, you do the talking. We will stay back. That's their response. Okay? So Moses goes up the mountain, right? And then this happens. Then the Lord said to Moses, go down because your people whom you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. So Moses goes up the mountain. He's hearing from God. God's giving him the Ten Commandments and other laws, 
right? And in the midst of this amazing scene where Moses is encountering God, God kind of interrupts himself and says, uh, yeah, by the way, uh, maybe you should go back down the mountain because your people that I just rescued from Egypt, yeah, they're getting corrupt. Well, what do you mean by corruption? Uh, well, what I mean by this is I, I sent 10 plagues to Egypt and they saw all that happen and they were freed. So these people are like, wow, look at our God. Our God could cause you know, all this stuff to happen. And then I split the Red Sea in half and they walk through and they say, hey, look, water on the left, water on the right. This is amazing. And after they cross, the water kind of closes in on itself. And like, wow, they're seeing the power of God every step of the way, right? And then um, there's pillars of fire and there's clouds. And now they go to the mountain and they see thunder and lightning. They see the power of God on display. And God's saying, you know what's really interesting is they just saw all these things. Like there's nobody in the history of people humanity up until this point in the story that has ever seen my power on display to this level. If you read through the book of Genesis, which is the story, the book right before the book of Exodus, you'll notice that there's nothing that compares to this display of God that they have ever seen. No human being has seen anything like this before. And even though these guys just witnessed something so amazing, the power of God on display, right? At the bottom of the mountain, they're becoming corrupt. And this is God's commentary on that. Next verse. They have been quick to turn away. You would think after you saw something as amazing as that, it'll take you about at least a month, right? You're like, you know, if you just saw the power of God, you're not going to be like five minutes later, like, <laughs> I'm going to do something bad. No, no, you're like, you're, you're stunned, you're moved. You're, you're like, I'm never going to, like, I'm never going to be the same anymore, right? You're, you're thinking, my life is never going to be the same. But here it's like, yeah, but it just took a few moments, maybe a few days, maybe, maybe just a few hours. We don't know how long it's been, but just a few moments later, God's like, yeah, they were so quick to turn away. My miracles, my power on display didn't really change them. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. God's like, it hasn't even been a month. You know, like I, I, I did all this stuff to get them out of Egypt and they were so quick to just say, oh, it wasn't God, it was this calf that let us out. Like, how's that possible? What? God's like scratching his head like, Moses, you saw everything I did, right? It's like, yeah, please tell me that impressed you. It's like, oh yeah, we've never seen anything like it. I'm sure those, yeah, everybody was impressed. Then why are they so quick to turn to corruption? Why, why did they start, why did they build this golden cap? Why did they do that so quickly? And so here, Moses learns one of his first lessons, which is this. God's might is powerless when it comes to changing hearts. I know, this sounds kind of like, ooh, I don't know if pastors say this. No, no. Uh, this is a, I want to make this very clear. When God displays his power to you and I, to anybody, it, it could shake our core. It could make us say, whoa, this is amazing. It might make us say, I'm never going to be the same again. But a few days later, you're going to realize you're right back to where you started. It could change you at the moment, but it doesn't change you change your heart. It doesn't change you forever. They were quick to turn. And so the story, story continues. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. This is so he's still on the mountain. He's like, before I go back down the mountain, I have one request, God. What is that? Uh, I want to see your glory. Okay. So, uh, so the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. But, he said, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. So God's like, you want to see me? Uh, well, I'm too, I'm, I'm too 
big, you know, I'm too glorious, I'm too holy, I, I don't know if that's dangerous for your eyes. So, so I have a plan. This is his plan. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. So like, if you want to really see me, then I'll give you a glimpse of me. I'm going to walk right past you and then I'm going to remove my hand and then you're going to be like, whoa, I, whoa, I can see the, uh, like, I can see his back, you know, like that's, right. And so that's what he sees. And this is, this is a very famous story. So Moses has that experience. He sees God, but not completely. He just sees a, a glimpse of him, but it changes him. And so now Moses is coming down the mountain. And when he's coming down the mountain, Aaron's like, there's something that's different about you, Moses. Like, what, what are you talking about? And this is that verse right here. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of covenant, that's the Ten Commandments in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. His face was glowing like a lamp. I mean, just seeing a glimpse of God made his face glow, literally, like a light shining out of his face. Okay, so that's, that's the Moses story. That's his experience on top of the mountain with God. Okay, so that in a nutshell. Okay, next, we're going to be looking at the Elijah story. Elijah's story, we're going to be looking specifically at 1 Kings chapter 18 through chapter 19. Because here in this story, we have another story where we have a person go to that exact same mountain. Okay, so this is how that story goes. So Israel by now has had many kings. We've had King, uh, we've had king Saul, we have King David, we have King Solomon, and eventually we come to this guy named King Ahab. And King Ahab marries this lady, her name is Jezebel, and together, instead of recognizing that it was God that brought him to this place that they are in right now, they say, no, 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 let's push God out of the picture, okay, and let's bring in these other foreign gods called, you know, they're called Baal or Baal, because we like to mess up the way that it's pronounced, Baal, okay. They brought Baal as a central part of worship, okay, so they turned all the worship centers into Baal worship centers, okay, and then when you do that, you also get the prophets of Baal that comes into your community, and the way that they worship is kind of dangerous. They, they sacrifice children, you know, it's, it's not good. So, so Elijah shows up, and by the way, Elijah means, El means God, Yah, Yah means Yahweh, it means God is, you know, Yahweh is our God. That's, that's what his name means. He's making a declaration here. He's saying that, no, no, Baal is not God, Yahweh is God. That's what he's saying here. So anyways, he shows up on the scene and says, we need to get Baal out of here and Yahweh back into the spotlight. That's, that's who we are as Israelites. We, we need to be people of Yahweh. So he starts to try to push all the Baal prophets out, but they don't want to move. So he decides to have a little showdown with them. And this is how the showdown goes. So there's a whole crowd of people of Israel that's surrounding him, right? And he's standing there, and on the other side of that little the circle is the prophets of Baal. And they're like, okay, here's the deal. Whoever could prove that their God is better, gets to stay. And, you know, and the, loser, the loser God needs to go, okay? It's like, okay, deal. And so there's this altar, and the, the, the deal is this, okay? Whoever could pray to their God and make fire come down on the altar to, to consume the sacrifice, that God, whoever does it first, that God is the true God. And they're like, agreed. It's like, okay. Ready, set, go. Okay, and so the prophets of Baal, they start praying, like, oh, Baal, please bring fire upon this, you know, do it now, do it now. And meanwhile, Elijah's over here kind of like, yeah, and they're like, hey, Elijah, aren't you going to get started? It's like, mm, 
no, no, I'm, I'm just gonna watch these guys make a fool of themselves. So here they are. Oh, Baal, bring fire down, bring fire, bring fire. And Elijah's just watching and he starts mocking them. He's like, oh, maybe, maybe, maybe Baal can't hear you. Maybe you should say it louder. And they're like, okay. He's like, oh, Baal, please come down, bring fire, fire. And then Elijah, like, read the Bible. This is like interesting stuff that he says. He's like, oh, maybe your God is on vacation. I mean, that's the more modern translation. And he's like, no, Baal, please come down, please come down. And I I kid you not, read the Bible. It says this. It says, maybe your God, (laughs) it's like, maybe he's, like, another translation would be, maybe he's in the bathroom. Maybe he's doing his business. And, and they get so f- frustrated and so desperate, they start cutting themselves, showing Baal how serious they are about bringing fire upon their sacrifice. And around that time, Elijah's like, whoa, this is getting out of hand. So he's like, okay, it's my turn, my turn, my turn. It's like a rap battle almost, right? <laughs> okay, so he shows up and he says, okay, I know there's a lot of people watching this right now, so... Uh, hey, some of you, I need some volunteers. Go down that hill right there, get some water, and bring it over here, and I want you to put water on my sacrifice. It's like, what? 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 No, we're supposed to bring fire upon your, on your altar. Wait, water? It's like, yeah, just go do it. So they go and get water. They dump it on the, on the altar, and Elijah's looking, he's like, mm, no, go get some more water. I'm like, are you sure? It's like, yeah. So they go and they, they keep getting water, and they keep dumping on this, 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 this altar, and then it gets so wet, there's puddles of water all over the place. And then he's like, okay, now watch God perform. So he's like, dear Lord, you know, bring fire down. Now, I'm sure at this point, Elijah's like, oh, this better work, right? So he's like, and he just prays just a little bit, and then fire from the heaven, whoosh, and consumes everything, and consumes their sacrifice, and they're like, and everyone's like, whoa, oh my gosh, like, oh, snap, right? Like, all that stuff is happening, and this is a response to the people. This is chapter 18, verse 39. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate, which is another word for worship. That's the true meaning of the word worship in the Hebrew. And cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Now, as I was sharing this with my wife yesterday, she's like, isn't that the name of Elijah? It's like, oh yeah, the Lord is my God. That's, that's, they're just basically saying, Elijah, Elijah. But they're actually also saying, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Okay, anyways. I had coffee this morning, so I'm like really excited. Okay. Okay, so, you would think at this point, God just displayed his power on display, right? There's nobody in that crowd that's like, ah, I've seen that before. You know, there's nobody there that's bored. Everybody, according to this verse, they fell on their knees saying, what were we doing? We're worshiping Baal, and he came and put that thing on fire. I want to worship Yahweh, the Lord. That's, that's my God. And so they all start worshiping God. And at this point, Elijah's like, yes, finally, Yahweh worship is back in town. This is great, right? But then look at the next verse. Chapter 19, verse 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Next verse. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, and this is a threat, by the way, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. It's like, by this time tomorrow, you're dead. Now, remember, you just saw God's awesome power, right? So what would be your response? Oh, yeah? I just pray and fire would come down on you just like that, right? No, no, that's not his response. This is his response. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba and Judah, he left his servants there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, which is going south. 
he came to a broom bush, sat un- down under it, and prayed that he might die. Dear God, my life is over. Just kill me now. What happened to all that power? I mean, we just saw a scene of God's power being displayed, and he saw amazing things happen, and Elijah was probably transformed by it. The crowd was changed by it, right? But look at the next verse I'm going to show you, verse 10. I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. Wait, I, I thought the Israelites just started worshiping God. But f- for some reason, within like 10 verses, they've already went back to rejecting God. Torn down your altars, put your prophets to death with a sword. And he says, I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. What happened to the celebration? What happened to the changed hearts? It doesn't seem like it happened. God's power on display could shake you. It could inspire you. It could make you say, wow, make you fall on your knees and worship. But it's temporary, as we learn from Moses' story. And now we're about to learn from Elijah's story. Next verse. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord uh, is about to pass by. He says, I know you're in the, in the you know, Negev area, the, the wilderness area. I want you to go to the place where Moses went. Go to that mountain, Mount Horeb. And I want you to go there because I'm going to pass by you in the same way that I passed by Moses that day hundreds of years ago. So what does he do? He gets up and he travels for 40 days and 40 nights to this location right here, to that same location, Mount Horeb. And this is where their stories overlap. Now, he gets to the place where Moses was. Okay, we don't know exactly where it is, but he seemed to know where it was. He gets there, and then he sees something very similar to what Moses and his Israelites saw. This is what he sees. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. Okay, it's like, he shows up at the mountain, he looks around, and then a whoosh, big wind, right? And then the, the, the rocks shattering, you know, like... Like, this is like Michael Bay movie. Things are blowing up all over the place, right? And it's like, whoa, look at the power of God on display. This is so amazing. And But what does it say? But the Lord was not in the wind. It's like, whoa, God, you're in that explosion that just happened. And it's like, no, sorry, that wasn't me. What do you mean? I, I thought you did that. It's like, yeah, but I'm not there right now. What do you mean? After the wind, there was an earthquake. Like, whoa, it's shaking. The floor is shaking. Whoa, God. If, if I went to Ahab and Jezebel and said, it's like, your kingdom is over, man. I'm going to make the ground shake. Like, if I had this power, this is so amazing. Okay, this is great. And God's like, yeah, but um, the Lord was not in the earthquake. Uh, yeah, I wasn't there. Whoa, wait, wait. I just saw the greatest power just happen in front of me. But that's not you? It's like, no, that wasn't me. Next verse. After the earthquake came a fire. Right? But the Lord was not in the fire. What is God trying to teach Elijah? Look at the next part of this verse. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. A gentle whisper. Now, in the Hebrew culture, a gentle whisper is reserved for specific types of relationships. It's the kind of talk that a loving groom would give to his bride. 
you get close to the person's ear and say, I love you. I will protect you. I'm here for you. I will never leave your side. That whisper, God was present. You see, this is a very interesting thing that God is trying to teach Elijah. Because Elijah at this point in the story thinks, if that fire that consumed the altar, if I could bring that upon Jezebel, if I could bring that upon Ahab, problem solved. If I could have the power of the earthquake and shake the ground, problem solved. But Elijah knows firsthand at this point in the story. He looks back. God just brought fire from the sky and consumed the altar to show his power. And within a moment, people turned their backs on God. At the moment, they were worshiping. They were on their knees. They were like, oh, God is so good, right? In the same way that Moses, like, whoa, split the Red Sea, fire from the sky, all these things. People were like, whoa, this God is so good. And I'm sure they were inspired and they were like, whoa, God is so good, right? But that was a momentary thing. And so the question again is this. If God is so powerful, why doesn't he just blank? King Ahab, Jezebel, why doesn't God just destroy them? Why doesn't God just show up in their, in their, in their throne, throne room and just be like, you know, <laughs> you know turn to snakes, you know, <laughs> or, you know, whatever it is, you know, um, you know write something on the wall, you know, <laughs> or, or I don't know, destroy their statues to give them a sign, or, or send them like a pig's head or something, and, you know, it's like, here's a message from the Lord, you know, like, I don't know, right? Why doesn't he just do these things? If I was in that conversation I was talking about earlier, I would be like my friend saying, why doesn't God just, if God is so powerful, why doesn't he just flood the place? Why doesn't God just, you know, why doesn't he just do these things? And the answer is the same, the same answer that Moses and Elijah got, which is this. God's might is powerless when it comes to changing hearts. God could control everything in the world, but he can't control your heart. He can't make you into better people. He can't make you into peace-loving people. Not with his might. Not through earthquakes, not through fires, not through lightning strikes, not through any of these things. Why doesn't God use these things to make, send a message? Because he knows that, that these powerful moves of God, these p- power of God displayed on you know, all these things does not change hearts. As a matter of fact, we see stories in the Old Testament, the Pharaoh story, that when God displays his power, it actually hardens hearts. When God does something, there's something inside of us that says, oh yeah, well, I'll show God, and you shake your fist at God. It makes you actually not want to change. Momentarily, you might say, whoa, I'm going to get on my knees and worship you, but in the bigger picture, that moment is just a moment. It's not a momentum. It's with that lesson that we go to Luke chapter 9. This is the transfiguration story. Okay, so you know the backdrop now of what Elijah and Moses mean together. This is the overlap part of this story, okay? So here we go. Eight days later, Jesus, after Jesus said this, and by this he's talking about what we've been talking about for the past few weeks, when Jesus fed the 5,000. Instead of sending them away, he said, no, let's keep him here and let's feed the 5,000. And then he asked Peter, who do people say I am? He's like, well, people say that you're Elijah. People say that you're John the Baptist. Who do you say I am? 
and he's like, oh, I think you're the Messiah. And Jesus says, yes, good job. But your version of Messiah is a little different because in Peter's mind, and if you missed this, you could go to the website and listen to the sermon from last week. In Peter's mind, he was thinking, you're like, going to be like King David who, you, who went to war. You know, remember, uh, D- David was a Messiah because he was anointed by God. He says, the Messiah, he's like, yes, I'm a Messiah, but I'm not like King David. King David went to war to make changes in this world. He, he destroyed the people who didn't agree with him, right? And I understand, Peter, why you might think that, because I kept the 5,000 people here. You thought that I'm going to take them, recruit them, make them into fighters, and we're going to go to war. No, 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 that's not what we're trying to do here, Peter. This Messiah, me, I'm going to win this war by sacrificing myself, by suffering, by being persecuted, by hanging on the cross, and by dying. And so in Peter's mind, he doesn't understand how can somebody die and win at the same time, right? Like, how could somebody say, this is how we're going to, guys, this is our plan. Okay, huddle, huddle. We're going we're gonna to get captured by the bad guys. Like, okay. And we're going to die. It's like, okay. And that's how we're going to win. Jesus on three. One, two, three. Jesus. No, no, no. Peter's like, I don't understand this plan, right? After he said this, Jesus is like, I don't think Peter gets it. I need to take him on this grand tour to remind him the Old Testament story. So he takes Peter and also John and James, right? And he goes to this mountain to pray. So, so far, as a person who's reading this, you're like, wait a minute. Jesus is taking these guys to a mountain. That's interesting. Next verse. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. It's like, where have I seen bright faces before? What story in the Old Testament do I remind me of when, when I see lightning? What, what does this remind me of? And this is an old Jewish way of telling stories. This is the way that you use specific words to remind you of an old story so that you're supposed to import that lesson from the old story and bring it into the present. That's, it's called a remez in Hebrew. It's, it's a very interesting way of telling stories back then. Okay, so he's saying, look, I'm dropping hints of Old Testament stories. Can you, you know, can you catch the hints? That's what he's saying here, Okay. So after this happens, these two guys shows up. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. So they're like, wait a minute, there's lightning, there's a mountain, uh, there's a glowing face, uh, there's lightning, um, there's Elijah, there's Moses. Oh, I think I know what Jesus is trying to teach us right here. I think I know what point he's trying to make. This is the point that he was trying to make. Moses and Elijah are a reminder that changed hearts are not achieved through force, but through love. It's through the whisper. It's through telling people, I'm on your side. I will protect you. I will love you. I will selflessly love you. It's through the act of kindness that our hearts change. It's not through demonstration of power that people's hearts are changed. I mean, it could change them temporarily, but if you want long-lasting change, he says, the only way you could do this is through love. And the story continues. They spoke about his departure, and the word departure is referring to his death. Okay, so imagine this Elijah, Moses, and Jesus, bright, shiny Jesus, right? And they're talking. They're like, hey, uh, Jesus, you know, like, I heard that you're going to go through with this thing. He's like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm going to go and die pretty soon. It's like, oh, that's, that's in line with what we learned at the mountains. Like, yeah, 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 that we're not, you know, it's like, Jesus, I know that you could strike lightning and you could bring clouds and smoke and you could do the trumpet sound and all that kind of stuff, but you're going to choose to use your power to actually go and 
die. It's like, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. When are you going to do that? Well, it's like, well, I'm going to go to Jerusalem soon. So what she was about to bring to fulfillment of Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, <laughs> but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing there with them. Now, this is interesting. The word glory, so think about glory in terms of like a spotlight. That in the Greek, the word is doxa. It really literally means the light that's shining on you. At this point in the story, you have to understand, in Peter's mind, glory is achieved through winning wars. Like, when you go to the, you know, when you think about glory in the Olympics, you think about it in this term, right? You're going to be on, you know, those three-step things, and you're at the top because you got the gold medal, and the, the camera's on you, and your flag is on the backdrop, and you're, like, singing your, your national anthem, and they're like, oh, that's glorious. You usually find glory through winning wars or through winning a competition, or at least being on top, right? Peter looks at the conversation that Jesus is having about dying, and he finally sees glory in it. This is a big change of heart for Peter. He sees something that he never saw before. When Jesus is talking about how he is going to die for the people around, you know, he's like, wow, that is so beautiful. That is so amazing. So he's starting to understand how putting yourself down for the sake of others to succeed, that there's some glory in it. He's starting to see it a little bit now. In other words, what he starts to understand is this, that power equals selflessness. You see, because up until now, he's thinking this. He's thinking, if you have power, you have the power to go and take over other civilizations. You have the power to convince people to think the way you are. You have the power to do, you know, right? If you had all the power in the world, meaning you could do all things, what would you do with that power? And the first thing that comes into your mind is usually not go feed the poor. It's, I'm going to go run the marathon, and I'm going to get first place. Or, I'm going to try out for the NBA, and I'm going to get MVP. Like, these are the things that comes to mind when we think about, if you had all the power, what would you do? Jesus has all the power, Right? And he has the power to strike lightning. He has the power to destroy people. He could just say the word and people cease to exist. He has that power. But with all the power he has, what does he do? He says, with all the power, like, I choose to use that power to submit myself. You know how hard it is to submit to people when you know you're stronger than them? It takes a lot of willpower to do that. When you know you could do all things in the world, but you limit yourself to just doing certain things, it takes a lot of power. You see, there's power that could overtake other people, but there's also power that confines yourself for the sake of loving other people. And Peter is starting to see that. I see Jesus glowing. He's talking to these characters, these Old Testament heroes. So I know Jesus is who he says he is. I know he is God. But he chooses to use that power to turn himself in to the Romans so that he could die for the sins of the world. He chooses to use his power to demonstrate to people how we ought to fix the world. It's by submission. It's through love. It's through selflessness. You see, when we talk about power, the first word that comes to mind is not selflessness. It's because our imaginations are so shaped by, like, the Marvel movies where, oh, you know, you're, you have this super serum and now you're Captain America, you're strong. What are you going to do with that power? I'm going to go kick some butt, you know, right? Like, it always resorts to violence. Jesus says, with all the power in the world, I choose not to go to violence. I choose to submit. I choose to sacrifice. You know how much power it takes to restrain yourself? 
more power than it is to take over another civilization, more power than it takes to win a war. And Jesus says, with all the power in the world, I choose to be selfless. He says, that is how we're going to change the world for the world. So as I was writing this sermon, I thought, man, like this image kept on popping in my head, and it was like a scene from a movie. And uh, I don't know if you guys know this, like for over a decade ago, it's called Bruce Almighty. You guys know that scene, that, that, that movie? It's one of my favorite movies. And um, so in case you haven't seen that movie, um, watch it. But, uh, <clears throat> but basically, Bruce complains to God about how his life is totally, it's a stinker. And he's like, oh, God, would you, you know, why? And so God, God played by Morgan Freeman, because who else, right? Morgan Freeman says, if you think you could do a better job at being God, then here, I'll give you all my powers. And so when Bruce realizes the next morning he has all the powers, he starts to do all these things. So here's a few scenes here. You have him splitting his tomato soup, like splitting the Red Sea, right? right? He, he walks on water. This is one of my favorite scenes where he's stuck in traffic, and so he basically parts all the cars to the side, which is a power I wish I had, right? Because he's like honking and honking. He can't get through traffic, so he just does this, and then all the cars split, and he drives right through the middle. And then he was a news anchor, and well, he wanted to be a news anchor, but that position was filled by this guy named Evan Baxter. That's the bottom right, right there played by a young, young uh, Steve Carell. <laughs> I know, that's what he used to, he, did, he, yeah, he looks the same now, so <laughs> that's the 10-year thing, right? 10 years ago, he looks the same. Anyways, um, uh, he, he's, um, so he's been trying to get this spot, and he basically sabotages his first day at, the w- at work by making him say some things that he didn't mean to say, and so, so that he could take his job. Like, he used his power to get what he wanted. God gave him all the power in the world, and and he used that power to, to do little tricks of splitting the soup, to walk on water, to, to get, you know, get through traffic, and to get the job of his dream. But then there's a scene where he has a conversation with God. And God basically says, all those things you did, those are magic tricks. It's like, they really don't accomplish anything. But you know what a true miracle is? A true miracle is a mom, a single mom, who has two jobs and still has time to go to his son's ba- basketball game or whatever, I think it was a soccer game or whatever. You know, it's like that's true power. He says, true power is found in the way that we love other people. You have all this power in the world and you used it to do these four things, right? And so after he has that pep talk from God, he decides to use his power for different reasons. And I want, I want you to take a look at this scene. It's about two minutes long. Take a look at this it gives you an idea of what he does with his power. you're here to gloat about the anchor position. Go ahead, take your best shot. Well, actually, I, uh, I just came to tell you that I've been a royal prick. The anchor position is yours. 
I turned down the job. Oh, and I never really congratulated you in the first place. Congratulations. Nice bros. In some circles, getting the anchor job, that's glorious. But Bruce finds glory in giving the job to somebody else, saying, you actually deserve it. Congratulations on your job, on your new position. He uses power to become selfless instead of using that power to be more about self-gain. It's that kind of whisper, it's that kind of love that changes hearts. It's not through the lightning and the fire and the earthquakes that changes lives. It's through love. It's through kindness. And these things are the things that lead us to repentance. We find glory in giving up the victory in some cases, but in the Christian circle, we actually call that victory, if that makes sense. <laughs> and so he looks at this, so you could just imagine, Peter looks at this whole scene and he sees Jesus saying, I'm about to give up my life. And for the first time, Peter looks at him and says, I see glory in that. We all want to make the world a better place whether it's through helping one person at a time, praying for somebody, maybe voting for a favorite politician, right? But we're not going to change the world by asserting our dominance over some people, saying, we're right and you're wrong. Or we have Jesus and you don't. I think that's where religion starts to go wrong, when we start acting like we're better than everybody else. It's when we humble ourselves and we express the love of God to other people. That's how hearts are changed. So I want you guys to notice this, that Jesus is powerful and can do all things. I don't want you to forget this. Jesus is all-powerful. He could do all. He's so strong. But with all that power, he chooses not to use it in, in bringing lightning on people he disagrees. He doesn't do that. Instead, he says, no, God's kingdom must be thread through sacrificial love. He uses that power to show love. And that is glorious. So we're back to the first question. If God is so powerful, why doesn't he just do blank? If God is so powerful, why doesn't he just get rid of his enemies? Do you understand what you're implying by saying that? What if one day you disagree with God? Do you want to get zapped? (laughs) right? No, 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 no. God used all his power and instead of doing the things that you think he ought to do, he decides, I'm going to use that power to demonstrate to the world on how to fix the world by becoming selfless, by loving our enemies, by caring for the people who are marginalized in society. That is how we're going to change the world. With the power that I have, that's what I'm going to do. And with the power that Jesus had, I'm going to take on the sins of the world even when they don't deserve it. That's how I'm going to do it because that's how the world has changed. It's through the whispers that hearts are changed. Amen? All right, let's pray.